Well, let's get straight into the Word of God. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 13. I'm going to be looking at a couple of verses in Matthew 13, but what I'd like you to do is put a bookmark or whatever you do to keep your place in 1 Peter chapter 2. And also in the book of Ephesians. We're going to look in Ephesians. We'll be in chapter 1, chapter 2, 3 and 4, 3 and 5. Looking at some scripture there so that you'll be ready to turn to him when we get there. Verse 45 of Matthew 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now if I could have your attention, pearls are a very interesting gem. They've been called by some the teardrops of the gods. Others thought them to be dewdrops that filled with moonlight that fell into the ocean and were swallowed by oysters. They were known for a long time as the queen of gems. Pearls possess a history and an allure that goes far beyond anything that we might imagine today. Throughout most of recorded history, a natural pearl necklace comprised of matching spheres was a treasure of most incomparable value. In fact, pearls were the most expensive jewelry in the world. Today, of course, we see pearls, or you girls do, (laughs) ladies, almost like an accessory or relatively inexpensive decorations to accompany other more costly gemstones. But before the creation of cultured pearls, that was back in the early 1900s, Pearls were so rare and expensive that they were reserved exclusively for the noble or the very rich, kings and queens mostly. A jewelry item today, of course, with today's woman or um, some folks anyway could afford a 16 strand of perhaps 50 pearls, and they range between 500 to $5,000 for a string of pearls like that. However, at the height of the Roman Empire, when pearl fever reached its heights, its peak, the historian Suetonius wrote that the Roman general Vitellius financed an entire military campaign by selling just one of his mother's Pearl earrings. I don't know what his mother thought about that. There's a fascinating story told also that to convince Rome that Egypt possessed a heritage and a wealth that put her beyond conquest, Cleopatra wagered Mark Antony that she could put on the most expensive dinner in history. Well, as the Roman reclined, the queen sat with an empty plate and a goblet of wine, or some say it was vinegar, 
And she crushed one large pearl earring, one of a pair of earrings. She crushed one of them, dissolved it in the liquid, and drank it down. Mark Antony was a little freaked at that, and he declined his dinner, the other earring, and he admitted she'd won. Pliny, the the world's first gemologist, writes in his famous... Uh, You know, he wrote these books about natural history and he's sort of famous for it. He said that those two pearls were estimated to be worth 60 million sesterces or 187,000 ounces of fine silver, which... If you work it out, it's silver being $5 an ounce, which it fluctuates. It would be $9,375,000. That was just those earrings. That's what they were worth. That was an expensive dinner. No doubt then, at the time of Jesus, pearls were extremely valuable. Extremely valuable. Now the question arises, what or whom is Jesus referring to as he speaks of this pearl of great price? What does it reference? Who's he speaking of? Well, one thing we've established then is that whatever it is, this pearl of great price here in Scripture, it is of great value. Well, there is a popular interpretation that says that Christ and salvation is the pearl of great price, and sinful man is the merchant who, on finding salvation in Christ, sells all that he might obtain it. There are quite a number of commentators that interpret this parable in that way. Well, not only does that interpretation, in my view, contradict the Lord's teaching in other parables in this chapter, it contradicts everything that I understand of salvation by grace through faith. You see, the sinner has nothing to bring to warrant salvation. All the giving up of himself, all the, 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 that that he might offer, if he had the whole world to offer, it could not earn him salvation, for it is all of grace. So rather than follow the popular opinion, I feel just the opposite is the truth. And the the merchant is not the unsaved seeking and finding salvation, but the merchant is the Savior seeking the sinner. The Savior giving up all to possess one pearl of great price. As the scripture says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. So we'll proceed this evening with our exposition from the position that the pearl is the church and the Lord Jesus Christ is the merchant. We will see later on he's not just the merchant. And as we go through this teaching tonight, you will see that the Lord Jesus most deliberately chose the pearl in this instance over and above any other gem or precious stone to illustrate his love for us, to illustrate it in a way 
that could not really be illustrated quite so wonderfully as it is here. That even in nature the story of redemption is told. I promise you by the end of this service, if you'll listen all the way through, you will never think of pearls in the same way again. We've already mentioned that the pearl, of great, the pearl is of great value there in the Eastern culture. And even today it is of great worth in some cultures. But we must point out, though, it was not really looked upon in that way by the Hebrew in the Old Testament. It's not really valued in any way in the Old Testament. And so maybe even as Jesus spoke of the pearl of great price, maybe the disciples sort of scratched their head a little bit. But they were aware of the value that this pearl was to the Gentile. And that's most important to us, that the pearl is something estimated by the Gentile as most precious, even if it wasn't viewed so by the Hebrew. So with that in mind, let's consider some things about the pearl. We're going to have a little bit of a science lesson. Pearls are different from other precious stones. As much as that they, they are natural gems created by a living organism. When a foreign object invades an oyster, the animal coats the irritant with a substance called nacre. It's acres with an N in front of it. That's how you spell it. Or commonly called mother of pearl. It's the same material with which it builds the shell. And over time, the layers of nacre build up to form the pearl. And as long as the irritant remains in the oyster, more layers of nacre are put around it, and usually the better the pearl. Now it's been said that the irritants were bits of sand that get inside the oyster. But as I studied this, I discovered that's really a myth. That, you know, oysters live in the sea, and they can't constantly ingesting and expelling sand irritants. That a natural pearl is never formed by a bit of sand or a bit of shell inside. They're actually capable of getting rid of the sand and bits of shell, or coral, or little pebbles. The real reason behind a natural formation of a pearl lies with a biological intruder. A parasite, an organism. I'm not going to try and pronounce the names of these parasites and organisms. But they may be like a drilling worm or, or like a cyst of a worm. But a parasite it drills through the shell of the pearl of the oyster... Uh, the shell of the, the pearl oyster, it drills through. The oyster becomes irritated and uses the only means of defense to form a barrier. Uh, the mantle uses this defense. It forms a barrier there. And it's being attacked, you see. And this mantle inside the oyster is a unique organ that covers the inside shell of the oyster. And it's responsible for the secretion of the pearly substance known as, as nacre or mother of pearl. And the oyster will use this mantle to secrete nacre on top of this nasty intruder. And if successful, it will coat them and turn them into natural pearls. So then, consider this important point. 
the pearl is really the result of an injury done to the life that produced it. The principle in creation of the pearl is that the animal that makes the pearl had to be harmed to do so. The pearl is that injuring irritant, whether it be a parasite drilling into it or some other invader, it's been transformed by the process of the covering with the nacre until the precious jewel is formed. The irritant intruder intending harm, or the oyster answers that intended harm by secreting this layer after layer of the nacre of mother of pearl to cover that which injures until it becomes the most precious jewel. Now let's carry that a little further. The Greek word for pearl, margarites or margarites, means purity. That's probably where they got the name for the gem. Probably comes from an old Sanskrit word which means purity. The pearl is often being a symbol of purity or innocence. So, that which caused injury, that which was impure and harmful has been treated by that which it injured in such a way that it has been transformed into a glorious thing of beauty. And it became an illustration of innocence and purity. More than that, it stood for the triumph of purity over impurity or the triumph of good over evil. So remember that before pearls were made commonplace by the manufacturer of cultured pearls, pearls in the East were reserved for kings to wear. Now this merchant found a pearl of great price. So beautiful. When he says a pearl of great price, it means a pearl, the kind of pearl that would be only fit for a king to wear. Only a king would be worthy to wear it. So with that in mind, what does this parable mean? I hope that with some of you, stuff's been going off in your head already. Let us remember that this word that was spoken was spoken not to the masses. This was a parable given to his disciples, his own. His own who would eventually come to know truths deeper and fuller than any truths anyone had ever known before. So we can see that Jesus intended us to see that during this age, he would take out of this world and present to his Father the fairest, most beautiful, glorious jewel that would shine in all eternity. A pearl of great price. That out of this sinful age, out of this evil kingdom, would be gathered to his father's house the most glorious of all his possessions that in ages to come would shine as an example of his grace and mercy and glory throughout all of creation. And the jewel of jewels that will adorn the father's house for all to look on in wonder is the church, is you. The one who found it, left everything, sold all to purchase it, is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He is the one who left glory, left heaven, to come to earth to redeem us. Now, this earth has not yet seen, or even the church has not yet seen, the beauty he sees in this pearl. And he has seen it from all eternity. He sees what it will be, and he waits patiently till it becomes all that he has seen it to be. And yes, he is making it all he has seen it to be. Now turn with me to First Peter chapter 2. And verse 4. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 4. Coming to him as a, to a living stone, rejected by man, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. That Jesus is the one there, of course, is precious. Go down to verse 7. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. You know, the he is is not in the original language there. So literally it means, or literally it reads in the literal translation... To you who believe preciousness. Now, if I could have your attention. Who is preciousness? Well, it is the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. And all that is his lovely character. All that is found in him is this preciousness. But look what it says, literally. But for you who believe is preciousness. That is, all that is precious in him is imputed to you who believe. That is the character of Christ being formed in you. Anything that is good or of godliness that is found in me, or Christ-like that is of me, or any beauty that is of me, that is in me, is or seen in me, is the preciousness that has been imparted to me through Jesus Christ. And that, of course, is his very life. Imparted to you and imparted to me. So we come to him. Worthless and base, a parasite bent on his hurt, and through our sin, of course, brought him harm. He was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. It was us that caused him injury, it was our sin that caused him injury. Yet, he who was injured has answered that injury by covering the ones who caused him the injury in all the glories of his own virtue and his own character. And mysteriously, this has all been accomplished through the injury that was inflicted, the cross. Are you with me? Now do you see the reason the pearl is chosen to illustrate God's love? And God's mercy to you. As we went through the description of how a pearl is formed. A pearl results from the hurtful thing that has invaded the animal. A pearl comes from that. And the result is one of purity. And beauty and innocence. And yet it is accomplished through the very life that it hurt. And so the church of our Lord Jesus Christ 
consists entirely of those who have been wounded by him, who wounded him. And yet from that wounding, and even because of that wounding, his life, his virtue, the glories of his character are imparted to you, to me. He is the merchant in the parable. But as I mentioned at the beginning, he's much more than the merchant. Not only does he find and see all the possibilities that are in the precious jewel, he is the one who made it that gem of great beauty. He makes the impure thing a thing of purity. He makes the guilty thing a thing of innocence. Now may we take the liberty of taking this thought a little further than what the parable does. You see, in the parable, we are not told where the pearl of great price ends up. But we can speculate, because it is a pearl of great price, it is a kind of gem that adorns only kings and queens, fit only for a king. And for us now, then, to inquire where of the what of the pearl of great price that Jesus finds, we've got to turn to the book of Ephesians. We're going to figure out the where and what of this pearl. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 18. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saint? Now note this text very carefully here. First of all, it's very important to note what it does not say. Paul did not write that he was praying for them that they might comprehend the riches of the glory of their inheritance. I mean, that's a wonderful thing in itself our inheritance, but that's not what Paul was writing. He didn't say to them, oh, you know, what are the riches of the glory of your inheritance? No, he says, look, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? He said, the glory of his inheritance in the saints. An amazing thought this is, and for some some of us, somewhat difficult to comprehend, for us to grasp, and for some, to even accept. But listen. This text does not communicate the thought that the saints are made rich in God. But rather the contrary. That God is enriched in the saints. That God gains something in his possession of this pearl of great price. Now, before all you theologians who are thinking, well, God's complete, he can't gain anything, you can't add to him or take away from his being, before you freak out, let me explain. And for this explanation, we've got to go a little further in Ephesians to chapter 2. Turn over to chapter 2, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and has made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now this is the verse I want you to really concentrate on and focus upon. Verse 7, 
that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is what, if I could have your attention now, this is what God gains in the church. This is what God gains in the pearl of great price. A means through which the glory of his grace, his kindness, his mercy, his love might be made known in the ages to come. Oh yeah, I understand. Oh, you theologians, nothing could be added to his essential glory. But in the church, he gains a medium by which his glory can be seen. Oh, I understand that there's nothing that can be added to his essential grace. But he gains a means whereby his grace can be seen. And may I add, seen in no other way. No other way could his grace be manifest as it is manifest in the pearl of great price. Even further in chapter 3, turn over another page to chapter 3. Paul writes that the wisdom of God will be revealed to principalities and powers and the instrument he will use is the church. Look at verse 8. To me, who am last than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. Now verse 10. This is the verse I want you to focus upon. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purposes which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says that it might be made known that God's wisdom, his manifold wisdom of God, might be made known by the church of God, that the grace of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, the wisdom of God will be manifest to all heaven and all principalities and powers in all the universe and wherever there might be any. And to reveal that love, that grace, that mercy... That wisdom, he will use the redeemed, the purified, glorified church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's with that thought in mind and the pearl of great price that Ephesians 5 takes on a greater meaning. Go with me to Ephesians 5. Verse 25. One all you fellows are really familiar with, but we're not going to focus on the husband's role as we usually draw from this, this verse, that we're going to look at the church. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she, she should be holy and without blemish. Oh, brothers and sisters. The depths of his love. That he would take that which is found in the sea of human iniquity. Gather it to himself. Though it would cost him great hurt and great harm. That he would take it and he would exalt it. And he would cause it to be the means through which the ages to come would see his glorious grace and wisdom revealed. 
And this grace that is thus revealed in the church could be revealed through no other. I will sing of his love forever. No angel, no seraphim, no cherubim can sing that song the way you can sing that song. Oh, they can sing holy, holy, holy. And I know that holiness of God, a chief attribute of God, and that's the reason why these angelic beings around the throne are always singing holy, 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 holy. But you know, I had another thought. Maybe one of the reasons they sing holy, holy, and holy, holy all the time is that they can't sing the song of His love. That's a song reserved for the redeemed. Only the redeemed can sing. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders, which we know are representative of the church, fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden balls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the the earth and throughout of all creation there's only one group of people that can sing that song there's only one group of people who are the redeemed there's only one group of people of which the cross means so much there's only one group that can say we have been redeemed by your blood you have redeemed us and what a glorious company that will be of every nation out of every nation and every tongue of which we shall be a part Oh, we can imagine the songs of praise and adoration that have always been, as it were, sung in heaven. Job tells us that when the Lord created the heaven and the earth, that the angelic choirs broke out in praise to celebrate that event. But this song of the redeemed can only be sung by the redeemed. It's a new song. The lyric whereof heaven has never heard before. The writing of that lyric of that song is made possible only because of the fall of man and the, the mercy and the grace of God in sending his son to seek us out. And to buy us back to himself. And it resonates a new sound in heaven. A new song that speaks of the glories of divine nature that only the plan of salvation can reveal. Angels can sing of the glory of creation. They can exalt God for all that He is and all that He's done, but only the redeemed can sing of the blood that was shed for me. Can you ever look at a pearl the same way again? It is indeed my favorite jewel, for it reminds me that he has drawn me who harmed him out of this world's ocean of sin. He has covered me. 
And he continues to cover me with layer after layer of that which is his very essence, his character, his beauty. And soon and very soon he will present me. Oh, wonder of it all. Even me. Faultless before his throne in glory. Truly a pearl of great price. A price that he has paid. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forevermore. Amen. Pray with me. Let's pray together. Bless the Lord. Father, how glorious it is. How wonderful it is, Lord. It is so wonderful that we can hardly believe it because we see ourselves, we see our shortcomings, we see our failures, we see our brothers and sisters and the mistakes they make. We see, Lord, what seems to be so much that is lacking in the church, and yet, Lord, you see so much more. And Lord, we do thank you for your mercy and your grace towards us. We thank you tonight, Lord, that you have saved us, but you have continued to work grace and mercy in our lives. And although it's so difficult to comprehend, we will one day be presented And be that precious jewel, Lord, you just show off to the whole of creation. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.